0: Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. Thank you for your prayers. As you can see, I got my voice back. Um, Yeah, yeah, some people are excited about that and others aren't. Um, You know, it's interesting. Somebody asked me, how does it feel uh, when I didn't have my voice? Somebody asked me, how does it feel to not have your voice? And I said inwardly, now I know what Samson feel like when he lost his hair. You know, you kind of lose that power um, that you think you have. And um, especially for a pastor, you know, your voice is important. And to not have your voice um, feels like something has been stripped away from you. So I grew very thankful uh, for the Lord for restoring my voice. And I want to thank Pastor Granberry for stepping in on the shortest of notice. Uh, I I did give him a few days, but um, it was short notice uh, from any standpoint. And so I'm glad, glad to be back and glad to be able to speak. Um, for those of you that are visiting or haven't been here, we've been doing a series um, on the treasury of Christ. In other words, how does being a Christian benefit us? Um, if you are a Christian, there are certain benefits that come with being a believer. My thoughts recently um, went on Jesus' words in Mark 8.16 where he says, What shall it profit a man... If he gained the whole world and lose his own soul. And embedded in that is two realities that I think our study has been addressing. Number one, there is absolutely no profit in being an unbeliever. According to the words of Jesus, there's no profit in being an unbeliever. Look, you could have all the money of Elon Musk and have all the fame of BTS, and at the end of the day... Um, yeah, I, I recently got into Korean K-pop. Uh, you know, pray for me. Um, it's a long, dark hole you can fall into. Um, but I'm there, you know. They're, they're like butter, what can I say? Um, right, threw it in there. It in. But, um, but in all seriousness, yeah, there's no, there's no profit, really, in being an unbeliever. There's, there's just none. But now, conversely, or as a corollary... Jesus actually says that there's tremendous profit in being a believer because you win your soul. And that's what we've been looking at for these past few weeks as uh, as we've been in Colossians. We've been looking at what are those benefits of being a believer? What are those things that as a Christian we benefit from? We've looked at several of them, and today we'll be looking at another one. And that's the freedom that we have in Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you know that because Christ has set you free, you are free indeed? And this passage that we're going to read, we see the tremendous freedom that the believer has in Christ. So, without further ado, let's look at Colossians chapter 6 down to verse um, number 23. Now, I'm going to give you fair warning, I'm not going to be able to deal with every single thing in this passage. And you're always free to come to me um, at some point during the week and say, "Hey, you didn't mention this. I wanted to know a little bit about uh, more about this section. I'll be happy to go through it with you." But I have a very narrow focus I want to share with you today, and so I'm going to keep it along that track. Um, but as you read this passage, I want you to pay attention to the interplay that Paul gives regarding our freedom in Christ versus the bondage that we're going to be uh, that the Judaizers, or whomever the the folks are in Colossians who are pulling them away. So let's begin with verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. That is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish um, as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. This is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen. And amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, these are your people, and this is your word. I pray that you might, by the power of your spirit, lodge your word deeply into their hearts. Come now, may your spirit give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May you loose the shackles of sin and the bondage that it creates. And instead, bring profound liberty to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name, and for his sake, amen and amen. The entire section that I just read to you um, by Paul is very significant because Paul picks up a very important theme in this book. And that's a theme that provokes a visceral reaction, actually, from all of us. And it's this. It's the theme of being free, and at the same time, the theme of being in bondage. So he talks about the freedom that we have, and he talks about being in bondage. Now, that theme is not just true of Paul in his day. That's true of even now. Uh, most of us in this room, to some degree or another, have been paying attention to the war in Ukraine, and and the resolve of the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian people, the... the when you see the way they, they are so zealous to fight for their country, every time there's, a, there's you know, someone putting a camera to their face and asking them, why are you fighting? Why, why is your resolve so strong? Why are you continuing to press on? To a person, they say almost the same exact thing. We want to be free. We don't want someone else coming in And putting us in bondage. We don't want somebody else taking over our country. We don't want somebody else um, putting us back. We want to be free. We want our own country. We want to rule ourselves. We want freedom. And so they fight for their freedom. And in the same way, Paul is calling each and every one of us in here to fight for our freedom. Freedom in the gospel. Notice What Paul says at the very beginning in verse number 6. Now remember, verse 1 through 5, what is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about the treasure of wisdom that we have in Christ. That no one should delude us about that. And as a consequence of that thought, Paul says in verse number 6, to live and walk as free people. Notice it in verse number 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word rooted and built up are significant. Rooted has the idea of planting gardens, right? Trees are rooted in, and building up has the idea of building houses. Listen to me. Every free people, every free people, when they get their freedom, the first thing they do is they build a house and they plant a garden. Isn't it interesting, in the book of Jeremiah... Jeremiah, I think it's 29, God tells the people of Israel that even though they are in bondage, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to plant gardens and build homes. Why is that significant? In fact, that very language was scandalous to them because they said to God, God, what are you doing? Why are you telling us to plant um, gardens and build buildings? Don't you know we're in bondage? And God says, no, don't you understand, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that liberty is seen in the fact that I want you to plant a garden, and I want you to build houses, because you are eminently free, because I am with you, regardless if you're in bondage. So Paul begins this section by saying, Christian... You are free. You have a measure of freedom. And that freedom is found in the fact that you could be built up and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's profound freedom. But then he said something else. He said that freedom is in jeopardy. Notice with me in verse number 8. How is the freedom in jeopardy? See to it that no one takes you captive By philosophy and vain deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary principle of the world, and not according to Christ. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying is that there are some that seek to hold us captive. The word captive there has the idea to grab and to enslave. Paul says there's a way of thinking that enslaves us. And here's the deal. What is this way of thinking that enslaves us? It's philosophy and, and empty deceit. Now, what does philosophy and empty deceit mean? Philosophy and empty deceit, Paul says, is a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking and a way of living that does not profit you at all. hold your place there and look at verse number 24, sorry, 23 of chapter 2. That philosophy and vain deceit, Paul says this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here's what Paul is saying that that philosophy and, vain, and empty deceit are things in which we believe that do not stop us one bit from indulging in the things of the flesh. Not one bit. You know, a few years ago, several years ago actually, there was this big push for us to become all all of us to become vegetarians, right? That's the big thing now. Become a vegetarian. I you know, recently I went into the food store and they have cauliflowered everything. They have cauliflowered my pizza crust, they have cauliflowered my wings. They have cauliflowered just about everything. Tater tots, it's cauliflowered. I saw cauliflowered ice cream. I made that one up. There's no such thing as cauliflowered ice cream. But you, you kind of know it coming. You kind of know it's coming. They have cauliflowered everything. Because in their minds, becoming a vegetarian will save the world. Now look, um, I was a vegetarian for two years. And I could tell you, that being a vegetarian has some profit. I lost a bunch of weight. I could run like a gazelle. I felt felt amazing. I mean, being a vegetarian is great. There's nothing wrong with that, but hear me today. The whole time I was a vegetarian, it did not help me in one bit stop the indulgence of the flesh. I had no power over my lust. I had no power over my greed. I had no power over my pride and my anger. Being a vegetarian did not help me to be humble, sacrificial. It didn't help me to be joyful, and it didn't help me to be less, um, less prideful, less judgmental. You see, what Paul is saying here is very significant The way in which philosophies and empty deceits from this world keep us in bondage is because they make us think that by doing these things, we become righteous. By becoming a vegetarian, or by by joining PETA, or, or by saving the planet, somehow that helps stop the indulgence of the flesh. And Paul is saying, actually, they don't. In fact, if you do those things and you're involved in those things, fine, great for you. I'm all for saving the planet as well. But Paul is saying, do not be fooled if you think those things are going to help with the indulgence of your flesh. 100% they won't. In fact, the exact opposite. They give you a false hope and a false impression. And that's how they keep you captive. By making you think you'll become a better person... If you do those things, Paul says none of those things will profit you. The only thing that will profit you is life in the Spirit. Life following Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will stop you. Now, after saying that, after Paul says, look, none of these philosophies and empty deceits, according to human tradition, according to elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ— Those things are going to lead you down the wrong path. Those things are not going to help you solve the fundamental problem of your heart, and that is giving into the flesh. And so Paul goes on now to give us three illustrations about how you can deal with the flesh. Three illustrations, how you can stop the indulgence of the flesh. And notice the three, right? And now the first two, I'm just going to like give it to you and say a few words. And I'm going to move on because it's the last one that I want us to spend the majority of our time with. So the first one is circumcision. Notice in verse number 11, Paul's making a point here. He's saying the philosophies and vain vain deceits of this world, all of the philosophies of this world, they will not help you to solve the indulgence of the flesh. But what will? Notice verse number 11. Paul says, in him, meaning in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, By the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is is he saying here? Why Why is this so significant? Why is he bringing back circumcision? Remember for a moment that in the Old Testament, when you were circumcised, they threw away your flesh, and that was supposed to be a symbol of you having victory over your fleshly desires. In other words, to put it another way, you are no longer underneath the influence of your natural inclinations, your natural uh, sinful inclination. Instead, you are now under the influence of God, under the influence of the covenant, under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. A great example of this is Mark 5.15. When Jesus heals the demoniac, what happened? The Bible says that when they came, when they rushed and they came to see this man that Jesus had healed, he was seated, he was clothed, and in his right mind. You know the power of that imagery? The power of that imagery is this. Here you have a man that was completely ruled by the flesh. He was angry and violent, and he acted out. And he had no control over his passions. But Jesus Christ came and delivered him from his passions. And now the exact opposite is true. Instead of him being violent and angry and just... Enraged. The Bible says now he was seated, he was clothed, and in his right mind. The contrast there is this. Once he was ruled by his fleshly desires, and now he is ruled by another set of desires. He's controlled by another power. And that other power he's controlled with is Jesus Christ. You know... Um, Recently, in our growth group, we've been going through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and the power behind 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, really came home to me. Listen to what the Bible says here. It says, no temptation has taken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Most of us stop right there. But the verse actually goes on, and unless you understand the rest of the verse, it actually doesn't make sense okay, so God helps you in, in some way to be tempted, right, in, in such a way beyond your ability. He will not let that happen. But how does God do that? That's the next part of the verse, because the next part of the verse goes on to say, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here, here's the pattern. Every time as a believer, you are faced with an option either to sin or not sin, there's a way of escape. And the way of the escape is not the flesh. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus Christ. That's the way of escape. Now, some of you are looking at me, and I know what you're thinking. Because I have those powers, right? Actually, I don't have those powers. I know what you're thinking because you're a sinner like me. And you know what a sinner like me often thinks? Well, that's great for Paul to say, but Paul doesn't have my children. Or or Paul, Paul doesn't drive in rush hour traffic. You see, Paul, if only people didn't cause me to act out, I wouldn't act out. If only my wife did what I told her to do, then maybe I wouldn't get upset. Or maybe if my children didn't act out, I could be able to restrain myself better, right? We tell ourselves that. It's not really our fault. It's everyone else around us is at fault. Everyone else around us is stupid. That's why I act out. That's what we tell ourselves as an excuse. Now, here's the problem with that excuse. The problem with that excuse, whether you realize it or not, is you give people more power over your flesh than you do the Lord Jesus Christ. What you are saying, whether you realize it or not, is this people have so much power over me that I have to act out. Other people rule the way I feel and act. Because when they say something mean to me, I have to say something mean back. When they slight me, I have to slight them back. I have to act out. I have to. There's no other choice, Pastor Dennis. There is another choice. There is another way of escape, and it's doing what the Lord has called you to do. Look, anything that causes you to act is your idol. Any person that causes you to act out, whether it's your children, whether it's your spouse, whether it's some stranger, if they cause you to act in the flesh, you are being ruled by them. There's no way around that. Because scripture is clear. There is an off-ramp every time you go to sin. And that off-ramp is by remembering what Jesus Christ has told you. A soft answer, turn it away, wrath. That you are called to be patient and bear with one another in love. See, see the problem is this. We give people too much power in our lives, that they control whether we're happy or we're sad, whether we're doing well or not doing well. Your mood, if you look at it, for some of us, our mood is in direct correlation to the things that are happening and others have said and done to us. And if that's you inside here today, you're not being ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. You're being ruled by your flesh and those around you. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying this, Your flesh has been circumcised. In other words, that desire that you have to act out, that's been done away with. You have an off-ramp, and the off-ramp is Jesus Christ the righteous. You put your faith, and you put your trust in him, and you allow him to rule your actions. You allow him to rule your thoughts. You allow him to rule your behavior, and he's actually made it very clear here in the Word. And so that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Either you're going to be ruled by your flesh and others, or you're going to be ruled by the Spirit. You've been circumcised, brothers and sisters, not, not, with, not with hands, but in your heart. Now, the second one, second illustration, that's the first illustration. The second illustration is baptism. Notice verse number 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, what what is the power behind this particular illustration of baptism? The power behind the illustration here is that of where is your identity? Who are you identified with? Who are you identified with? Again, another great example of this, if you look at Acts chapter 4, verse number 13, the disciples are standing up and they're preaching, and the people are looking at them and they said, what is going on? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Why were they so astonished? You know, every now and then when when you're reading your Bible and you come across certain words, you need to pause and ask yourself questions. Why were they so astonished? Here's why they were so astonished. They know that these men were fishermen. And one person, I love how one person said it in their uh, their commentary. They said, fishermen were described as crude in manner and rough in speech. These men were fishermen, and they were identified as fishermen. And how did people know them? As crude in manner and rough in speech. Look, I grew up around um, fishermen. My father was a fisherman. And being in the Bahamas, you're around a lot of fishermen. Let me tell you something about fishermen. Two things are true about fishermen. Not every fisherman, but generally most fishermen. Two things are true. Number one, they curse a lot. And secondly, they drink a lot. And the two don't go together. Most fishermen that you met, if you grew up in the Bahamas like I did, those two things were true. So when you saw a fisherman who didn't drink a lot and who didn't curse a lot, you know what happened? They stood out. And so here it is. Here it is. These fishermen who, who were known for having foul mouths and crude behavior, all of a sudden they are standing up and they're proclaiming Christ. They're letting the world know that their identity is not in their profession. Their identity is not in how they were raised. Now their identity is firmly placed in Jesus Christ. The word of God says here in verse number 12 that they have been buried with him in baptism and now raised with him through faith, through the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. In other words, their complete lives have been transformed. No longer do they identify with their past behavior, but now they have identified with Christ. And here's what Paul is saying to them. If you have have now identified with Christ, why would you want to identify with anything else? Why would you now want to be identified with philosophy and empty the saints' deceit uh, that has no power to help you with the indulgence of the flesh? Beloved, we are all, if you are identified with Christ, the word of God says now you have to walk in a way that's pleasing with him. The the association is at point here. Now, quickly, notice the third application. Look at verse number 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Haven't forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how has God forgiven us of all our trespasses? Verse number 14, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal uh, demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the third one. That all of the debts that you once owed God now has been canceled. See, he, here's the thing, and again, All of this imagery is smack dab in first century Judaism. In first century Judaism, if you were indebted to someone, if you had debts against someone, they would take a piece of paper, they would write those debts on it, and they would post it for the world to see. And when the world saw it, you know what they knew? They knew that you were in bondage to that person, that that person owned you. And that person could tell you to do whatever they want you to do because there was a record of debt against you. And and anyone can go up to there and say, oh, you know, uh, let me see. Aiden owes um, so-and-so $50. And he could never pay that back. So I'm I'm going to borrow Aiden for 10 cents. And it was such that you could never pay that record of debt off and you were always in bondage. And Paul is operating on that same imagery. He said, brothers and sisters, the record of debt that was against us, there was no way we could pay it back. But then Christ on the cross paid the entire record for you, the entire debt for you. And not only that, he took that record and he smacked it on the cross and he nailed it down for the world to see that now you are debt free. Any, any one of you that has ever uh, gone through Dave Ramsey's uh, program know that when you pay off your debt, what do you do? What do you do? There's something that he tells you to do. Do the debt-free scream, right? And people will do it. Now, look, no one has ever done a debt-free screen, uh, scream with half their debts paid off. They have done the debt-free scream because all of their debts are paid off. And what Paul is saying here is that you and I, because we are in Christ, have had all our debts paid off. Look, there are, there are people inside you today that, have, that maybe are in a lot of debt. You have college debt, you have mortgage, you have consumer debt. You know the weight of debt. Imagine if somebody comes, uh, comes to you and pays off all of your debt, all of your debt. Think about what that would mean. You would live differently. You would think differently. You would act differently. In fact, you would be more generous. You would you'd probably work a little less. You'd probably go on a vacation. There's so many things you can do. If somebody came right now and paid off all of your debt, whether it's, again, whether it's uh, you know, debt from school, debt from, from uh, consumer debt, or, or debt of car, all of that. If somebody paid off all your debt, You would live completely different. Why? Because you're debt-free. What Paul is saying here is that we as the people of God should live completely different. Why? Because we are debt-free. The record of debt has been taken away from us, and it's nailed on the cross. We don't belong to anybody else now, and now we can walk in freedom and newness of life. Now, here's one more thing I want to say. One of the things about this verse... That we should pay attention to is the fact that there's a record of debt that's been canceled from God's people, and therefore God's people should generously live. And how should we generously live? By forgiving others. Remember what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. He said, We should pray, forgive us our debts, that we should forgive who? Our debtors. Hey, if you've been set free, if you've been forgiven, The Bible says that now you live in such a way that you are generous with forgiveness. Look, I meet some people, I meet some people, and they have a record of debt in their hand like this, of wrongs that people have done to them. Every time somebody wronged them or say something to them, they write down that record of debt and they hold it. They hold it and they wave it around like this. This person's wronged me. This person's done this to me. This person didn't speak to me. It's just they carry around a record of debt, and what happens? They become debt collectors. Now hear me, brothers and sisters. If you've been set free, should you walk around with a record of debt? Of course not. What you should take this record of debt and do is nail it to the cross, because that's where your record of debt is. So often we struggle with unforgiveness. We struggle with pettiness. We struggle with not talking to people because someone offended us or say something to us. And, man, we, we are quick to grab that record of debt and we just hold it up. Now, here's what happens when you don't do anything with that record of debt. You know what happens? You become bitter and angry, frustrated. And then you know what further happens? You go deeper back into debt. Hey, if you have had your sins forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, the record of debt is gone. So now you know what you can do with your record of debt? You can just tear it up, nail it to the cross, be done with it. That's how you and I should live. You know, one of the things that destroys communities is when people come in and out of church with their record of debt and they never leave it at the cross. They just carry it around and carry it around and carry it around. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what you're holding against other people. But I know this: it destroys you. It kills you. You end up being bitter and angry. Release your grip and allow yourselves to walk in newness of life. All right, what's the big takeaway? The big takeaway is simply this. Don't allow yourself to be enslaved. Paul says in verse number 23, Avoid all things that have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and a severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Whatever you're doing now that does not help you deal with the sin in your life, Paul says stop it, get rid of it, because it has no value in your life. Instead, start doing the things that will have value in your life. Prayer reading the word, forgiving others, loving your neighbor. These are the things that help you deal with the sin in your life. Don't stop using all of the other things that don't. And with that, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, um, these verses are so powerful because they challenge the way we think. They challenge the way we live. These verses remind us that we've been set free. And because we've been set free... We now have the power to live as free people. Lord, we don't owe the flesh anything. We, we are free to serve you and free to follow you. We are also free, Heavenly Father, to act and live righteously. Help us to do that. Help us to get rid of all of our records of death. Instead, help us to walk in newness of life. Lord, bless us now, your people, as we come to your table. The table is a sweet reminder that we have been freed from the power of sin, and now we get to commune with you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.